Welcome to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Join us for an in-depth look at Iowa agriculture. Here's your host, Riley Smith. I hope everyone had a great holiday season to close out the year. It's been great to be back in the office for the beginning of the new year, and we look forward to having a great 2023. Welcome into this week's edition of Weekend Ag Matters. I'm Riley Smith. Russ Parker, Dustin Huffman, and Mark Magnuson will join us later on in the show. As for right now, let's start with a quick look at the news headlines. Iowa Ag Secretary Mike Nag recently announced the employees who will serve in leadership positions at the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship. The announcement comes as Nag begins his second term as secretary. The following is a list of the department leadership. Grant Menke will be Deputy Secretary. Menke is joining the department after serving as Vice President of Market Development for the Iowa Corn Growers Association and Iowa Corn Promotion Board. Prior to that, he served as Iowa State Director for USDA Rural Development and Policy Director for the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association. Colin Tadlock is the Chief of Staff. Tadlock joined the department in 2021 as Legislative Liaison after previously serving as the Communications Director for the Speaker's Office in the Iowa House of Representatives. Susan Kozak is the Division Director of Soil Conservation and Water Quality. Kozak has served as Division Director since 2019, and she has been with the department since 2008 and previously served as Mines and Minerals Bureau Chief. Kate Basanmus is the Deputy Division Director of Soil Conservation and Water Quality. Basanmus has served as the Deputy Division Director since 2019. She has been with the department since 2016 and previously worked in the Field Services Bureau. Dr. Travis Knight is the Division Director of Consumer Protection and Industry Services for Food Safety and Animal Health. Dr. Knight was named Division Director in July of 2022. He has been with the department since 2005, previously serving as Laboratory Bureau Chief. Haley Pontier, Deputy Division Director of Consumer Protection and Industry Services, Food Safety and Animal Health, and Department Attorney. Pontier joined the department in September of 2022 after previously working at the Iowa Department on Aging and United States Department of Agriculture Farm Service Agency. We also have Dr. Jeff Kaizen as the State Veterinarian, Dr. Justin Glisson, State Climatologist, Robin Prusner, State Entomologist, Paul Overham, State Horticulturist, Haley Hook, Legislative Liaison, Ben Bocamp, Special Assistant, Leah Mosier, Executive Assistant and Scheduler, Don McDowell, Communications Director, Amy Smith, Deputy Communications Director, and Alex Rausch, Digital and Visual Communications Manager. In other news, the Environmental Protection Agency and the Army Corps of Engineers announced a final rule establishing the definition of waters of the United States. They say the rule reduces uncertainty from consistently changing regulatory definitions, protects people's health, and supports economic opportunity. The final rule restores essential water protections that were in place before 2015 under the Clean Water Act for traditional navigable waters, the territorial seas, interstate waters, and the upstream water resources that significantly affect those waters. Following extensive stakeholder engagement, the EPA is delivering a durable definition of WOTUS that safeguards our nation's waters, strengthens economic opportunity, and protects people's health. EPA Administrator Michael Reagan said. It also provides greater certainty for farmers, ranchers, and landowners. Michael Connor, Assistant Secretary of the Army for Civil Works, said this definition provides clarity long desired by farmers, industry, environmental groups, and other stakeholders. It also allows for more effective rule implementation. That's all the time we have for news headlines this week. 
Check out the rest of our daily news stories on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network website at iowaagnet.com. And while you're there, go ahead and sign up for our newsletter to get our daily content conveniently delivered to you every day. We'll go ahead and kick it over to Russ Parker with his faith-based Food for Thought here on Weekend Ag Matters. In the late fall of last year, we decided that the best solution to fix the water quality in our pond was to drain it and clean it out. It had been completely covered with algae and the weeds were growing up from the bottom and the fish had all disappeared. It was a great home for the bullfrogs, turtles, and snakes, but an eyesore in our front yard. So the backhoe came over and proceeded to dig a 12-foot wide trench through the dam. And it didn't take too long for that large machine to make short order of the task. And soon the contents of the pond came gushing through the newly formed ditch. In a matter of minutes, most of the water was gone, exposing a gooey, mucky bottom, some old Christmas trees, and a few bewildered frogs. The idea then will be that during the summer of this year, the muck will dry out and a bulldozer can come in and push the silt and sediment out through the dam. And a new bottom can be established and fresh water come in. And hopefully that pond will be good for another 40 or 50 years. For a few hours this past week, I was over at our pastor's house. He has recently retired and he and his wife are moving to Des Moines. So this past month, they've been packing up their belongings, sorting out what they'll keep and what they won't, and over time have emptied the house. My reason for being there was a volunteer member of the cleaning crew. Just like my pond, all the contents were gone, and a good scrubbing was part of the process of getting things ready and freshened up for the next occupants. And one of my sons was telling me about his snowblower not starting the other day. Of course, it hadn't started for a couple years, so it really came as no surprise to him that it wouldn't start. He mentioned that he'd smelled old gas after a few turns of the flywheel and was pretty sure the carburetor was filled with varnish. So, much like the process of cleaning out the pond or sprucing up the empty house, he took the carburetor off, gave it a good dousing of carburetor cleaner, put all the parts back together, pushed the electric start button, and vroom! It started right up. Ever felt like your life is mucked up or in need of a deep clean or just has a few places that need a shot of cleaner? Well, I know my life is like that. In fact, it seems like every day something needs to be attended to. But there is hope. First John leads us in the right direction. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Food for thought, I hope. This is Russ Parker. Have a blessed day. Thanks, Russ. That's it for segment one on this week's episode. Coming up after this short break, Dustin has a chat with the folks at Compere Financial. This is Weekend Ag Matters. Every detail matters when building a winning game plan. That's why the Cyclones and Hawkeyes rely on better, cleaner-now biodiesel to power their team buses on game days, delivering success on the field, in the field, and in the environment. 
Make biodiesel part of your game plan by visiting IASoybeans.com. Biodiesel. Request it. Grow it. Use it. This message brought to you by the Iowa Soybean Association and the Soybean Checkoff. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here's your host, Dustin Hoffman. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. I'm Dustin Hoffman. Well, recently we were in Kansas City for the National Association of Farm Broadcasting Convention, and during that we have a chance to talk with many of the policymakers and ag companies throughout the whole scope of agriculture to talk about what they have got going on, the message they're bringing to farmers. One of those companies was Compeer Financial. While they're not known for a presence in Iowa, the message they were bringing to farmers was one I think uh, spoke beyond company boundaries. And that talked about the symbiotic relationship between farmers and rural communities. Both of them need the success of the other to thrive and be progressive into the new year, especially when we're facing economic challenges. We had the chance to talk with John Munson of Compeer Financial, and here's what he had to say. We're talking right now with John Munson. He is Chief Mission and Marketing Officer at Compeer Financial. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes to talk with us today. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. All right. So what we're going to be talking about today is rural vitality. And that's something that, you know, we kind of think about in the back burner, but yet it's something that's so important to the ag industry and to the people who survive off the ag industry. Tell us a little bit about what message you're bringing to people. Well, uh, having lived in a rural community my entire life uh, and working in uh, across rural America and agriculture for an entire career for 37 years, we've learned a few lessons. One of those lessons is that agriculture is really dependent on strong rural communities. Strong rural communities are dependent on strong agriculture. So with that said, there's a lot we need to do. So we know that there's a lot of infrastructure issues in these rural communities. We know that workforce readiness and workforce availability is a big issue. We know that daycare is a really significant issue in these rural towns. We know that rural health care is aging and has a great deal of needs. We can keep going. Entrepreneurs are moving in or want to and they need financing to be able to do that. They need to be connected. So what do we do about all of these things? Well first thing we know is having worked at USDA in a past career as a state director and now working with Compere for the last 16 years we know that it's a team sport to be able to do all of these things. So what does that mean? It means that public, private, nonprofit partners locally, regionally need to come together to be able to provide capital. But we need to learn where it needs to be applied. What are the priorities in these communities? So it really starts with understanding, listening, and learning. And then investing. That brings more of it, more learning. So one of the things we want to be able to do, we already invest in rural health care. We do that as a team sport already in rural communities by working with local banks, working with local partners to be able to invest in rural hospitals, rural nursing homes, assisted living centers, so that we can update them, the facilities and the technology. But we also need to be able to invest in entrepreneurs. And when we do that, we see where they go. We see who they need to connect with. We see what services are missing. Maybe it's broadband. Maybe it truly is infrastructure. Maybe some of it's just leadership or coaching in the community that needs to be invested in. That's the way that we're going to learn. So it's really an exploratory effort to be able to start somewhere by learning then applying these lessons, prioritizing our investments and our partnerships and building it from there. So we already do some of this, but we've got a lot more that we need to understand and learn to get started. The needs are greater than what we can do by ourselves, but not too great for all the partnerships we can create. 
you know, and you brought up, for example, you know, like health and, and, and internet, you know, things like that. Internet, obviously, to keep the students competitive and learning, keep the keep telehealth going on. But it's beyond that too. You've got the the fact that schools are needing upgrading or hospitals are needing upgrading to equipment, and sometimes the structures are 70, 80 years old. I mean, you know, that's also part of it beyond the the internet part of it as well. It is, and there's we can we can go on. I think we can sit, we can put together a long, long list. But the question is, you know, what's the priority? What makes the biggest bang for the buck? Do we start with small things that create small successes to build momentum? Or do we invest big and broader to really start making a broader impact long term? Good question. I don't have the answer to it at the moment, but I do know that we have to begin to learn and understand what that list looks like to begin to prioritize where we're going to start. And it's probably a little bit of both. And if we can do that well, we can replicate and scale that across the territory and share these lessons learned. We've done a lot of work in this already since 2008 where we did something called regional competitiveness across 38 counties and we learned that people when they come together we can determine which areas of industry we prioritize and how we invest together to make a difference and since then it's been self-sustaining. Now we have, it used to be all about jobs, 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 now it's all about workers, workers, workers. We need more people. But, uh, and and we, used to, we used to be able to, uh, we have a lot of unemployment. Now that's turned into a case where we have not enough available workforce. So things have changed. So that success, success also has uh, some challenges that come with it. So I, I feel like we've been able to do this already, and we can do it again, and we can do it even better. A lot to learn. How much is it that, you know, obviously we talk about the financial stuff, but how much is also for these rural small towns keeping the kids in the town? A lot of them dream of that big city, big job, not realize they can still do that big job and help out that rural community. Amen. I, I hear you. Four kids in my family all went to the big city to go to college. Here's the great news. They all came back to the rural community. And what they did is what they learned, they brought back to their rural communities and they're making a, a big difference. A kid who's a small town banker, who's the head of the chamber of commerce in a small town. I love these kinds of stories, doing some marketing in these communities, working in healthcare. All of this stuff matters. But that's exactly the right thing. When you have people leaving the communities, you have a knowledge drain. But here's the beauty of coming back. You can find leadership positions. You can make a difference there. You're going to find more security in, those, in these rural towns as well. You can become really active. You can become the local coach. Get on your elder board at your church. You name it. You, those opportunities exist. And I think it just takes a little time and they come back. And that's exciting. That story is really exciting to a lot of people that have left town but want to look for those opportunities. That exists in every small town in rural America. And how can places like Compere that you know do rural investments and stuff like that, how can these... How can you interplay with some of these businesses, whether they're the farmer, whether they're the, the local grocery store, even if it has to be? Well, I think, I think a lot of it's done through you. It's, it's, we can use our voice and what we're learning through you in order to be able to help share. So I think, I think the more that we work together, you create critical mass of influence and a stronger voice by sharing those perspectives, whether it's by publication, whether by radio, TV, you name it, social media especially. The more that we talk about that, the more I think that it enhances... We want people to be able to come to Compere. We want them to crawl over glass to be able to get in because they want to be here so bad. We need to make it an energetic environment. And I think all these rural communities want to do the same thing. So let's make it happen by working together to make ourselves exciting and energetic for, these, uh, for the next generation to come back. Right. We need them. And what do you see going into 23, some of the things that farmers need to know? That's the next step for farmers. What kind of things are they needing to be thinking about in some of this difficult time? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's volatile time for sure. Well, you tell me what's going to happen in China and Ukraine and, and in Russia, and I'll give you some better answers. But I think volatility is probably the word of the day. 
as a result, I would take a look. If you haven't paid close attention to your input costs, look at them carefully now. Manage those starting now. Second thing, go to USDA, talk to them about their programs. Make sure your crop insurance is in place. Make sure that all your safety nets are in place as we look at the next year, but be intentional about that planning. I think that's the difference here. You can't just ride it out. Uh, zero, days of 0% interest are gone, and with inflation as it is, prices are changing. So just be more aware and more intentional about managing the input side of things than ever before. All right, John, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us today. My pleasure. That again was John Munson of Compeer Financial here on Weekend Ag Matters. We're going to take a quick break, and then Mark Magnuson will be in to wrap up the show. Welcome to January and the beginning of the new year. While we don't know for sure what 2023 will bring, we always need to do our best to be prepared. The same holds true when you're traveling in winter conditions. Make sure you're always aware of the weather forecast, as winter weather can change in the blink of an eye or vary greatly between regions. And be certain of what conditions you may face throughout your route. You can always check conditions across the state by calling 511 on your phone or downloading the Iowa 511 app. This message on winter driving safety is from your friends at the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here is Mark Magnuson. Mark Magnuson with the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network, and I'm here with Michael Dolch today. He is the Director of Public Affairs with the Iowa Soybean Association. Michael, thanks for joining us here on Between the Pods. And I just want to ask you, first things first, did the Iowa Soybean Association, from your viewpoint, did soybean farmers, growers here in the state of Iowa, did they see some things happen policy-wise this year that were to their benefit? Yeah, sure. And I'll start off with last state legislative session, actually, uh, where we saw a really favorable legislature on agriculture issues, uh, particularly biofuels, uh, an effort led by Governor Kim Reynolds, backed by our farmer leadership and are empowered by our advocate membership across the state and other ag stakeholders, um, really brought to life uh, ideas that's going to put Iowa first um, when it comes to biofuels production and also biofuels consumption. So we're talking about the expanded, I would guess, then ability to create those fuels. Is that kind of what we're talking about when it comes to policy? Exactly right. So moving tax incentives from lower blends to higher blends, again, to drive uh, that demand, uh, that consumption of more biodiesel in our case. Um, as we all know, uh, soybean oil here in the state is the number one feedstock for biodiesel production, uh, not only here in Iowa, but across the Midwest and uh, primarily across the U.S. as well. So uh, really just trying to drive that demand overall and again return more value to the farmer's pocket for the product they produce. Now, Michael, we know that corn ethanol that you're, as a consumer driving in your daily driver that you're putting into your car, you can get that. It is available, you know, almost everywhere here in the Midwest, and it's something that's just become part of our daily lives. Do you foresee that we are kind of on the brink of having at least soy diesel involved in that arena, not necessarily as widespread as corn ethanol, just because that's probably not possible? Uh, I guess I don't know. I'll ask you that question. Is it possible, I guess, to even get kind of in the same ballpark when it comes to the widespread distribution? Yeah, sure. And I think you pointed out the fundamental differences, obviously. Um, but I think biodiesel is becoming more of a household name for the simple fact that in today's society, we're having a lot of conversations about climate, carbon reductions. Biodiesel is a fuel available today to help meet some of the administration's climate goals, some of Congress's climate goals. 
um, and honestly society's climate goals and carbon reductions. Uh, so yes, I do think there's going to be markets, growing markets for biodiesel, whether we're looking at rail, marine, and even aviation with some of these sustainable aviation fuels that are being produced and coming online. So then for the average Iowa soybean farmer, that just means more opportunities for their soybeans to go towards products that people use and they would use every day if it was a diesel product. Absolutely. And I should make mention that with increased biodiesel, renewable diesel production, uh, what that brings along is additional investment in soybean crush. Uh, that provides opportunities, additional market opportunities for our farmers across the countryside uh, to, again, maintain more of that value uh, for the product they produce. Okay, then, Michael, was there anything else not diesel-related, not soy oil-related that caught your eye this year in the legislative session? Yeah, I think, you know, farmers here at ISA have been a longtime advocate for soil health, water quality conservation funding. It's an issue that um, will continue to persist. We've made tremendous progress across the state under the uh, nutrient reduction strategy that was implemented uh, many years ago. Again, we are seeing progress, but our farmers have identified opportunities for continued growth. Uh, scale up of uh, conservation practices um, and acceleration of, of those practices across the state. Um, but primary driver is the funding mechanisms that help implement those practices. And something that um, we've worked over the last several years is the Natural Resources and Outdoor Recreation Trust Fund, uh, commonly referred to as IWIL, Iowa Water uh, land legacy. Um, so again, that's a priority of Iowa Soybeans Asso Association's a carryover from this past year and many years before that. Um, and I do know the legislature this coming year is actually going to be focused on tax reform. So there may be some opportunities um, to at least educate new members, uh, the new faces that we have in the legislature about the importance of some of the conservation that's happening on the ground and what additional funding would do to again scale up and accelerate those practices. Michael, I know we're focusing on Iowa farmers, of course, and Iowa legislative issues, but are other states as receptive to the ideas of their soybean farmers? Are they as willing to work hand in hand and, and you know, make these things possible? Yeah, I truly think so. And something that I've seen um, across the soybean complex, the soybean family, if you will, is an increased um, attention on collaboration. Um, even on the policy side, uh, we have what we call the Midwest Soybean Collaborative. It's about a year and a half, almost two years old, but basically a policy and regulatory think tank where uh, my policy counterparts from across the Midwest, uh, we get together. Um, we talk about some of the policy issues today, but more focused on those three, five, 10, 15 years down the road that our farmers are going to be facing. And how can we analyze that to the benefit of the farmer uh, to essentially carry that through to policy. Um, so I am seeing a lot of increased communication, a lot of increased collaboration. I think, you know, based on the marketplace today and where we think it could potentially go again with some of the demand drivers we're seeing, um, yeah, I think there's going to be continued collaboration on that front. Ben, nationally, what are you keeping an eye on? Is there anything that um, has I guess policy-wise caught your eye for uh, national issues or I guess any other states in the country something that maybe has interested you recently? Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost, uh, much like at the state level, we have a few new faces, new faces, fresh faces in Washington, D.C. that will be sworn in uh, early January. So it's a matter of educating those folks. Great opportunity to get in front of them and tell the Iowa farmer, Iowa soybean story, uh, first and foremost. Um, but again, opportunities to weigh in on farm bill priorities. 
Um, our farmers are always um, looking to protect the crop insurance provisions. They're looking to improve the farm safety net. Um, opportunities to grow market access for the soybean, uh, whether that's on the meal side or the oil side we talked about. Um, Biomass-based products, bio-based products, looking for growth opportunities there. Um, so again, with some of these new members of Congress, um, one being from Iowa, I think we'll have some really good opportunities to educate them uh, going forward. And we'll probably see a lot of that work take place in the Farm Bill f during the next session of Congress. But is there any indication then, some of those things that you just mentioned that people are either receptive to, maybe they're pushing back against a little bit, do you think that for Iowa soybean farmers, the ISA, do you think that this farm bill is going to be something that is going to, I, I think, go the way that they hope it will? Yeah, and I think when you look at you know farm bills passed and the lessons learned, we don't see a revolutionary legislation by any means. I think it'll be somewhat evolutionary. And again, through the Midwest Soybean Collaborative and our work with other states and here in-house with our advocate membership, again, really powered by our advocate membership, you know, surfacing, you know, what's working, what's not. I know oversight is going to be a priority of the new Congress, the new uh, majority, at least on the House side in Washington, D.C. And so really a good opportunity for us to say what's working, what's not, um, and how can we arrive at a better bill. And I really think, you know, probably not something that we want to rush by any means. Uh, we want to do it and we want to do it right, um, but ample opportunity for our farmers to weigh in on the issues that are important to them, and I mentioned a few of those. And if they did want to get in touch or they had a comment to make to you, how would what would be the best way for them to go about and do that? Sure. Uh, my information's online at iasoybeans.com. Um, log in, uh, drop me a note, or they can call the office directly and patch me through to the phone, and I'm more than happy to have that conversation with them. Michael Dolch, Public Affairs Director here with the ISA. Michael, thank you so much for the time here on Between the Pods, and have a great rest of your week. Appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. That was Michael Dolch, Director of Public Affairs for the Iowa Soybean Association. And that's it for this week's episode of Weekend Ag Matters. Thank you for tuning in. You can listen to this episode and past episodes of Weekend Ag Matters by going to the podcast tab at iowaagnet.com. For Russ Parker, Riley Smith, and Dustin Huffman, I'm Mark Magnuson. Thanks for tuning in to Weekend Ag Matters on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network, where Iowa Ag Matters.